it's Heidi and Melissa and we're glad you're joining the Beyond the Defense podcast today. Thank you to our return listeners who return to hear another episode. Today, we are fortunate to be joined by Dr. Heather Krupp, who recently completed her doctoral research, uh, which was titled Residence Life as Learning Organizations and Inquiry into Organizational Elements that Support Integration of the Residential Curriculum. Heather earned her Doctorate of Education in Educational Leadership for post-secondary education from Portland State University, where she graduated in June of 2020. And we're so excited to engage her in conversation about her dissertation research today. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Krupp. Could you start by introducing yourself to our listeners? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to contribute and also learn from this podcast. Um, my name is Heather Krupp. I use she, her, hers pronouns, and I work at the University of Oregon, where I serve as the Associate Director of Residence Life. Um, I'm a California native, um, born and raised, and I've been in Oregon for the last 10 or so years. I've worked at small private liberal arts institutions and the U of O, University of Oregon, is the first large state school institution I've been at. Um, I've been here for a little over 10 years. I've had three different positions within residence life, but my current role for the past um, five years. Um, I love Oregon. I love the West Coast. I know that you all are not from the West Coast. <laughs> I enjoy being near the ocean. My partner surfs. Um, we just had a little uh, a little one. He's a three, three-month-old. His name is Camden. And so I'm getting out of maternity leave soon. Very excited to be here with you all today. It's a little bit about me. And we're excited to allow you to have some time to focus on you. Uh, can you start off by top, talking about your dissertation topic and how you chose it? Yeah, so my dissertation uh, topic was around a curricular approach, but how organizations actually structure their organization to allow the curricular model to thrive. I found in my current role, I actually oversee our curricular model um, department, and I realized how Residence life, as most of us know, that there's a lot of barriers that happen within student crisis and conduct. And I saw how firsthand the curricular approach, the curricular development, how that was really pushed aside due to the crisis work and nature associated within residence life. And so I was really intrigued myself as a scholar and a practitioner starting in a doctoral program to really understand what are long the longstanding curricular model departments, how they actually allow their curricular model to thrive, and what is it about their organizations that have really sustained that curricular model. And so I did a lot of research, and there's not much out there. There, At the time I started my dissertation um, research, there were two dissertations published about the curricular model and a handful of articles and resources. I actually reached out to Hilary Lichterman, who was the first person who wrote a dissertation dissertation on a curricular model and kind of pitched my idea to her when we were at a conference. And she really encouraged me to pitch this idea to my faculty advisor. I found her dissertation to be really inspirational. And so I, I did. I pitched it to my advisor. My advisor didn't think that it was a bad idea. She said, she's like, I think it's actually pretty intriguing. And it was very different than what I was first uh, researching within my first year of my doctoral program. So I completely switched my topic area of interest. And, you know, for me, it was exciting to think about 
how I can learn as my own practitioner, as well as, you know, contribute to the field. That's a little bit about how I chose my topic. Um, Heather, as I was reading through your dissertation, I kept thinking back to, I wonder what her experiences were as an undergrad, right? Like, I feel like so much of what we do in our dissertation either relates to what we do right now in our eight to five or our own college experiences, particularly, you know, for higher ed or in your case, ed leadership students. So share a little bit, if you yeah. if you would, about your undergrad experience as it relates to your dissertation topic. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you know, my undergrad experience, I worked as a student leader all within orientation and transition programs. And so I didn't do residence life as an undergraduate student. I think some people think that I might have done that, but I did not. I really valued the, you know, out of class experience, I think, as one has as well. So within orientation, we did a lot of transition programs, but we, I worked at a campus that was strengths-based, so we um, we were able to co-teach a strengths-based leadership course for undergraduate students, for first-year students. We had small group discussions that were really structured and facilitated, and so I think a lot of that parallels to when I first became a first-year professional outside of my grad experience, where I was innately interested in the student population. I was a residence director at a first-year living environment where I actually started connecting with faculty to ask them, what is your curriculum? What are you teaching students in your first-year experience? And so kind of parallel to what I did as an undergrad student with strengths-based education, I was able to kind of map some learning within first-year students that were living in the community that I was in. And so you know, when I think about this curricular model and curricular approach, when I first heard of it and I went to the, what is now Institute on Curricular Approach, but back then the Residential Curriculum Institute, it it connected and, and it really, you know, got me excited to think about how can we scaffold and structure this within our department. And so it's a little bit about, you know, my undergrad experience, but I think there's a lot of connections about how am I creating learning moments for students and how do we do that thoughtfully within the learning goals and outcomes that we actually want them to, to learn within. So I think that's a, a pretty unique way that I've been able to do that. Absolutely. I mean, there's certainly, you know, you hear so much, everyone on campus is an educator, So Heather, before we jump into your dissertation research, why don't you explain to our listeners what the curriculum model is in residence life programs? Yeah, the curricular approach, I mean, it kind of ties back to why did I choose this dissertation topic? The curricular approach was actually created by the University of Delaware, by Kathleen Kerr and Jim Tweedy in their residence life department. And Paul Brown talks about the curricular approach, whether it's called residential curriculum, the curricular approach, or the curricular model, but really defines it as the intentionally specifically structured ways of promoting learning in a college or university student affairs program. And so um, a lot of the curricular approach has been scaffolded by the 10 essential elements, which are created by faculty that were on the Institute of Curricular Approach, which really assist departments in developing their curricular model. And so talking about the curricular approach, there's been a lot of research about the curricular approach, whether it's been by Paul Brown or to name a few other amazing scholars, uh, Kathleen Kerr, James Tweedy, Keith Edwards, and Dylan Kimmel. Uh, There's been research that talks about the benefits of a curricular approach. So knowing that students feel more welcome, they enjoy living on campus, they have increased sense of belonging and satisfaction. 
And departments of residence life have actually had less strain on budgets, fewer conduct incidents, and staff have reporting to have a more positive experience. And so um, Paul Brown talks about developing a curricular approach, how it takes multiple years and that it takes, um, it's, it's also about the departmental structure. And so that's another reason why it bolstered my desire to kind of research this topic was to really understand how departments with a thriving curricular model that is based in the 10 essential elements, how they sustain their curricular model through their organization structure and infuse a learning-centric environment. So those are some of the kind of additional research and, and resources that I utilized while coming up with the backing of, of why I was doing my dissertation topic. Great. And this being a tool that residence life departments are now using more and more, I think it's really valuable that we look at that and try to have a research foundation as we develop these programs. Yeah. And it's, you know, the curricular model has been started within residence life and it's really expanded outside within just divisions of student affairs and in other departments. So there's a lot of other divisions that are taking this approach as well, which a lot of the the findings that we'll get into can be adapted to departments and divisions as well. So taking that brief overview of the literature, which is an essential element of every dissertation, how how do you now decide to dig into your research questions or your your sort of things that you're curious about about this curricular model and so the organizational structures and cultural elements that surround it? What's your approach here? So yeah, as I was thinking about the research that has been there and and to answer my two overarching research questions, um, I felt that a qualitative interview study was best suited for my research, knowing that I wanted to know how residence life departments support the curricular model and how they infuse a learning-centric environment. And so I settled on interviewing two different people from five different institutions, so 10 people total. Um, One person who oversaw the curricular model at their institution and the other who was um, equivalent to a hall director staff. And I found research said a lot that if you interview two people from a different hierarchy within the organization, you're able to understand more information about the organizational culture and structure. And so it was most important for me to interview two people from multiple institutions rather than just one person from a large majority of institutions. So I found that interviewing, you know, two people from five institutions, I got enough uh, data that I could have ever imagined. Um, And it was important for me as I, you know, I kind of, I asked faculty that served on the Institute of Curricular Approach for Uh, institutions who have a thriving curricular model based on the 10 essential elements. And when I asked, I think I asked about four faculty members from ICA Institute on Curricular Approach, and all of them gave me about seven institutions that were the same. Um, And so within those, I distilled down to like institutions. And so I, I interviewed state institutions with a first-year live-on requirement. So those were um, some of the criteria, as well as having the curricular model for a minimum of four years, as Paul Brown points out, that it takes multiple years to get a curricular model in place. And some additional things that were common with all of them is that they all had graduate programs within student affairs, which wasn't a criteria, and they all utilized graduate students. So 
There were so many, so many similarities between all of them. They were also were all semester based, which wasn't a criteria as well, but it was pretty interesting once they were solidified as part of the research, how similar they were within their, the structure in general, which was, which probably uh, boded well to a lot of the findings were, were fairly similar in some ways. I love that you made the decision to interview people on two different levels of the organization. I think that really adds value to your study. When you were approaching institutions, did you get any pushback from individuals in your sample where they were like, uh, no, we don't want you to talk to maybe the people on the lower end? Or were all the institutions completely open to the interview of both? Yeah, well, I reached out to seven institutions who met the two uh, criteria, and the five of who I were part of the research were very excited about it. The other two, one um, I believed I thought had a first year level one requirement and they didn't. And the other felt like they weren't necessarily following the 10 essential elements as best as they could be. So it felt like okay to pass the, the opportunity. But the five that were part of the research, I, I reached out to the person who I believed, you know, oversaw the curricular model and they were jazzed. I mean, people were getting back to me within like, like 10 minutes, they were excited about doing this. I, you know, had hall director staff that I interviewed. I, I was blown away by the hall director staff that I talked with. I mean, all of them, it was amazing. They all viewed themselves as scholar practitioners and were excited about the curricular model, excited about the curricular approach, were so amazing to be a part of the, the research that there was no pushback. People were excited to contribute to something that they believed in so much. That's certainly one of the the fun parts of of research. I find that I had the similar experience when I interviewed um, participants from my dissertation. I really wanted to share their stories, so that's exciting. Before we dig into some of the theoretical frameworks that underpinned your analysis, I do have a couple of questions about your your method in terms of challenges and successes that you had with the interview process. I mean, it sounds like successes, you know, where participants were really interested in, in joining you. Talk a little bit about your sort of experience of the interview process for this study. The interview process, I mean, some of the challenges were that it was over a virtual platform. So the majority of the institutions that I interviewed were either on the Midwest or the East Coast. So no one on the West Coast where where I was. So we did everything via an online platform. Um, I was able to record everything and I found the best the best transcription thing at the time. I know Zoom now transcribes for you, but at the time I, I had an app called Otter that was a transcribed in time, which was really amazing. And it was able to, on the back end, just input within the platform that I used, which was Deduce, which was a really easy platform for qualitative research. You know, the virtual platform was a little bit challenging in general, but I think at the time when I was doing my interviews back in 2019, we weren't as virtual as we are right now, but my interviews lasted about 90 minutes. Some of them went closer to the two hour mark. So there was a long time that we were engaging in dialogue and conversation, which I think maybe was taxing on some of the, the, people, but people were thrilled when we got to time. I was like, Hey, I just want to be cognizant of your time. And people were like, I'm okay to go over. This is really, it's, I'm having a good, good time, which was, which was great. So I think that was one of the challenges that I had. 
But in general, I feel like everything went pretty smoothly. I, I wished in the end when I started it that I had more institutions. But like I said before, I felt like the five institutions that I had created a, enough rich data for what I came up with, what the what the participants shared for themes, which was which was great. We alluded to the fact that you were using theoretical framework for your study. Tell us a little bit about who you found or what you found and and how it related to this project. I have to say that the doctoral program that I was a part of did a fantastic job of thinking about, you know, the, what the literature is saying, you know, what our questions are to really help us probe and push to figure out the best conceptual and theoretical frameworks. And so not just landing on something that we think um, we should be landing on, but something that we really think will help us answer our our questions. And so I did land on Bowman and Deal reframing organizations for the, the conceptual framework of my study. You know, I looked at, I, I can't even tell you how many organizational theoretical frameworks, but time and time again, I was drawn back to Bowman and Deal. I challenged myself to think about different frameworks that I could use, but ideally, you know, organizations are made up of people who create cultures, who create the structures. And so when we're dealing with these complex organizational structures, Bowman and Deal really has a great framework to, and a lens to view complex structures and problem solving within the four areas, uh, the four frames that they have. So I utilize that as the conceptual framework and recognizing and knowing that a lot of the literature talks about organizations as learning organizations. I wanted a framework that that showcased that and so chose Singe's learning organizations as the theoretical framework. It's primarily been used in business sectors, but I found that there's been a few dissertations when I was doing my literature review that utilized it as, as one of their frameworks, which I really appreciated it because I was able to see how they utilize that. And so I ended up incorporating both of those. I had four areas that I took. So I took the four frames of Bowman and Deal. So structural, the human resources, political and symbolic. And then I broke those four areas and mapped Senge's learning discipline. So there's five disciplines Senge talks about. So whether it's shared vision, their system thinking, mental models, personal masteries, and team learning within those four areas. And then I utilized those, the conceptual and theoretical framework. As I was reading both of the books, I was tabbing and marking up questions that I could ask participants. I was utilizing the 10 essential elements for additional questions and mapping them within the four areas. And then I utilized those four areas to ideally generate my interview protocol questions and then do all of the coding within those four areas, which I felt like that was the most helpful thing for my positionality to kind of remove myself from the data that was really important for me to really focus on what what, what are the participants saying that, that, that are related to the frameworks. And so that's a little bit about how I utilize the, the two frameworks. We used Bowman and Deal in our governance class. And I will say in the number of dissertations we've read, so many of them have referenced Bowman and Deal, whether discussing organizational structure of an institution or doing using Bowman and Deal as a specific org theory. When I saw it, I was like, Bowman and Deal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you referenced your positionality. And this is something I'm, as a qual researcher, 
I'm always particularly interested in is like, how do you, not that that's the goal to tease yourself out of the data and out of the interview, because depending on your paradigm, that's not necessary and or possible. But I get the sense that it was important to you from what you just said that to sort of bracket yourself and your own experiences from the data analysis process. Talk a, talk a little bit about how you accomplish that. Yeah, you know, after I defended my uh, proposal, I got a lot of feedback from my committee about how was I going to do that. And so one of the committee members suggested that I create and utilize a research journal, which I did. And so I, I also printed off my research question, the purpose, the abstract that I had at that time to really center myself when I was before and after the interviews. And After the interviews, I sat, I gave myself 30 minutes to like an hour to just sit and highlight and write down anything that stood out to me that I remembered as part of the interview to try to capitalize on what I heard in a lot of ways. So that's how I kind of started the coding process in some ways, but it also helped remove myself from it. And because I, I wanted to write down what I heard, what, what, what I knew. And then also, as I went back through the coding process, make sure that some of those highlights I didn't, I didn't forget about, but I, but I had that kind of printed off sheet of paper that I had that I brought with me everywhere of like, you know, the, the purpose of my research, the questions that I had, what am I really trying to answer that really helped solidify my, my research to help me try to make myself be as removed as I could. We also had a really great cohort. I loved the program that I was in. There was a good cohort model that we did a lot of paper sharing. And so a lot of the topics that the colleagues and I were researching were very personal. Um, and I think that tends to happen more so when it comes out within qualitative research is what some of our professors have shared. And so we did a lot of swapping of papers to kind of counter check each other, which was good. And I really appreciated that feedback where people had talked a little bit or pushed me, maybe if there was a bias that was coming up, I was able to understand and talk, talk through that, as well as just check my own self within that, because it is a really personal topic as I oversee it in my own department. And I have a lot to learn at the, at the time and still do within this topic. So that's how, a little bit of how, of how I did that. There's an element where as a researcher, we're the, we're a tool. So how do you feel like your positionality informed your analysis? Yeah. I mean, that's a great, that's a great question. Melissa. I, I cared, I care so much about the topic and I knew after each interview, how much I was learning within the questions that I was answering that I think in some ways, my positionality, it pushed me to do really good work. It, it pushed me to want to highlight and share the themes and the stories that I was hearing. It pushed me to want to elevate, um, what's working well within departments and maybe what are areas that they recognize are areas of improvement that they're working towards. And so I think in some ways it really pushed me to do, to do better work because I care so much about it. So Heather, uh, you know, as we kind of transition to talking about your findings, I think one of the biggest part of your findings section is the fact that you developed a new model called the curricular integration model. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? How you came about to develop it? How did your findings create the foundation for this model? Yeah. As I was writing chapter four, I never knew that a model would be the end goal of what would happen. Um, 
you know, I did a lot of coding with the four areas and there ended up being 16 core themes that ha- that came up within the four areas. And as I had kind of finished and was working through chapter four, sending it back and forth to my advisor, um, she asked for a phone call for us. And we talked through... Um, the findings that we had. My chapter four is very large as any qualitative researcher <laughs> writes a chapter four. It's it's very bulky, but she wanted all of it to be there. I was like, I think this is too huge. I think we should cut some of this out, but she's like, it's so rich. Like we have to keep this all in there. And so part of my interview protocol um, and questions that I asked were for participants to give recommendations for other institutions as far as sustaining and creating a a learning-centric approach, which were the two research questions that I had. And so I felt like um, I wanted to give them a platform as far as recommendations that for their lived experience that could be helpful for others. And as we were looking through through the recommendations and kind of the core findings, it really brought to life that there were two overarching themes that happened that all of these departments had, which were the structural components of the organization that really were brought to life. And then the learning centric kind of organizational components. And so my advisor and I were talking a little bit about that and she gave me uh, some homework to do um, as far as trying to distill the 16 findings down into a more palatable. So how are you going to distill this down? And so I really took the recommendations and thought strategically about the frameworks that I was using and the the overarching themes were this this organizational structure which really is the pillar of how a curricular model is sustained in an organization is the structure of the actual organization and then the second overarching theme was the organizational culture about how is the culture supporting the curricular initiatives and how is the department actually learning centric in the approach and so the model that was created has those two elements the structure and culture and then within each of those uh, themes, there are four um, different components underneath them to operationalize the model. And as I was thinking about and distilling down the eight elements, it really came to life as I was reviewing and re-listening to the participant stories that there really is a way to operationalize the model. And so there's an initiation portion of the model. There's a And then that kind of leads into the elements of sustaining a curricular model and then having ultimately a thriving curricular model. And so I can walk through those if it's helpful. Yeah, I think that'd be great. Please do. Okay. So, you know, as we look at the initiation stage of the organizational culture, it starts with the leader. So the first theme was this leader legitimization, which organizations that I interviewed, they had leaders who were articulating the vision, they were providing resources, providing monetary things for people to go to the Institute on Curricular Approach or bring faculty to their department. Um, All of the institutions had one lead curriculum coordinator that oversaw the curricular model, but that person didn't oversee the day-to-day operations of residence life. So they weren't responding to crisis or doing conduct. Like their sole responsibility was the curricular approach to focus on that. In some departments, it was associated with maybe assessment or academic programs, but not the day-to-day operations. So that was kind of the one salient theme. The next was strategic design, 
So thinking about how, who are the stakeholders of the curricular approach and how are we strategically designing the curricular model? So really integrating the 10 essential elements, being creative in our approach, having well-researched practice for students and um, thinking about different ways that we want to encourage student learning. All the departments, um, the other two themes were learner-centric and learning organizations, which were the two other um, stages within the initiating stages. So really creating that learner-centric culture where people view themselves as educators, where they want to be uh, learners and, and they have that learner mindset. All the departments revamped their hiring and recruitment processes to actually hire and recruit people that were learners um, and educators and viewed themselves as such. I had one participant say, you can't teach that. I can teach everything else, but I can't teach someone to want to learn and to be an educator. And all the departments were learning organizations. So they really did focus this connection on making mistakes, moving forward, um, and really being learning centric in their approach. And after the model kind of moves forward into once those elements are there into a sustaining process where they're focusing on campus integration. So integrating campus partners within their curricular model, whether that's co-facilitating programs or outputs, as well as using campus partners to vet content and having empowered communication, which really is focusing where, where the positional leader has the opportunity to clearly communicate the vision of the curricular model. There's like a clear directive. People feel empowered to do this. You know, hall staff are actually communicating clearly the expectations of student leaders that they supervise. And then that's kind of the, the second stage. And then that leads to this like thriving approach where within the model where organizations have a very clear assessment process and it's rooted in data that's student learning based. And they utilize that on a regular basis to make improvements for their curricular model. And then iterative adaption, which you know, we, we know that the curricular model is not stagnant, nor should an organizational culture or structure be stagnant. So this model talks through the eight components really interacting with each other, that even though it is somewhat of a staged process, they all always need to continuously improve and get better. And knowing that people and organizations are going to be learning from one another and that they're responsible for student learning, we also have to continuously improve um, how we do things. And Something that I just want to highlight here is that this model is very separate than the 10 essential elements where the 10 essential elements are focused on the actual curricular model itself. But this model, the curricular integration model, is about the structure and culture of how to support the curricular model efforts. And so if you have both of these, what I know is by the research that I was able to do is that the organizations have a thriving curricular model where they're able to actually focus on student learning and what students are gaining from being within residence life with this research. They're, they're able to grow in, in a lot of ways that the department wants them to, which was pretty awesome. Great. Was there anything unexpected that you found that really stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, kind of the the overarching thing, having done qualitative research in grad school and a little bit here and there, I have never done anything like this on this multitude in this level. And I I didn't I didn't know that there was going to be so many similarities between the five institutions. And I can tell you that I was I was really, I was really, I was like, wow that's so similar to all of the other institutions, which it's not similar, you know, and, and that's why these institutions are known in the field of having a thriving curricular model, I think, because their organizational structure and how they, how the culture has manifested itself is so similar. And so I was very intrigued with how 
many commonalities the departments had. I found that the findings are very parallel to a divisional approach or how to implement this outside of residence life in a different organization. I was very inspired by the hall director staff. I, I mean, I was, I was, I mean, I would get off the phone with some of the with some of the participants and just be in awe for a moment about how much they care about student learning and how much they see themselves as educators. And I thought to myself time and time again, how lucky that organization is and how lucky the students are to have such an amazing staff that, that work at their institutions. And so those are some of the, the findings uh, that I found pretty, pretty inspirational. Um, I also realized that in order to make a curricular model thrive, all of these organizations have outstanding positional leaders and directors that give money and also time and efforts. And they have an ability to say no sometimes to asks outside of the department. And uh, I think the other finding that was really intriguing to me was that there was one lead curriculum coordinator, and that was the one salient finding that was was one of the first questions that I asked was who oversees the curricular model, and it was the first kind of thing that everyone checked the box within my interviews. I was like, wow, that's pretty intriguing that the, that all of them have that commonality. So those are some of the um, findings that I found to be pretty inspirational. It it is interesting because when you look at the profiles, the institutions that you interviewed, I mean, obviously they are not, the names are not shared, but they are very different in size and population, location. Um, Mm -hmm. So it bodes well for the curricular approach can work at all these different institutions. So I kind of, one of the things you had touched on um, really stood out to me when reading your, your chapter four, you talked about how great the hall staff was that were actually facilitating these curriculums. And there was a section where you had talked about hiring practices. And I know earlier before you had mentioned the hall directors or the hall staff as individuals who identified as being scholarly practitioners. Do you get the sense that that is caused by individuals coming to these positions with that view or that intent, that identity? Or do you think that's something where it's the department or the divisions that are really building that identity and that professional development from the inside? Yeah. It seems like it's both when I, as, as it kind of came out in the research, what I, what I could, what, what I can say to highlight the participants and their experience and what they shared was that all of the recruitment and hiring processes have shifted towards educating um, candidates about the curricular model. So people knew what they were kind of quote unquote, getting into when they decided to be a part of the organization, if they were offered a position. And a lot of departments kind of shifted their recruitment process to be more learning based. So how do you learn about new things like, you know, changing their interview questions or changing what a typical kind of presentation might be to a case study to see how people are thinking and how they're processing things. A lot of the institutions changed how they trained staff to train them on the curricular model, but but train about, you know, how to have a learner's mindset or, you know, some of the participants shared that it, it felt like they were in a classroom again. They were reading articles and discussing with partners. They had a learning partner throughout training um, and they were talking about student learning, which is something that was, I shouldn't say new to these departments because it was something that had, had been built over time. And so I think it's both. And I think 
one of the participants said, like I said before, they need to, they wanted to hire people with a learner's mindset, knowing that it can't be taught. Um, but what they can teach are elements of their curricular approach um, and elements of what it, how to have a student conduct meeting, you know, how to be on call, how to respond to crisis, but um, teaching someone to want to learn and teaching someone to want to um, be an educator is a harder thing to teach. And that typically has to come innately from within. And what I found from the hall staff that I interviewed is they were, they understood the role of a curricular approach and they were taking every opportunity that they had with students, um, whether that's students that they supervise to equip them with understanding their role in the curricular model, or whether it was times that they had with students that were in an advising capacity or um, someone they met at a initiative or someone they saw within their hall community, they were taking moments to educate people about the, the learning goals and outcomes that the department had. And so I think it's it's both and. Very cool. Um, Heather, just a follow-up to your eloquent explanation of the crop curricular integration model. What's kind of been stuck in my head is, well, this needs to be shared in the world beyond ProQuest. <laughs> what, what plans do you have to kind of take that model that you develop with, with your data and kind of share it with, I don't know, professional organizations through conferences or maybe in an article? Have you, have you thought along those lines? I have. Um, I actually served as faculty on the Institute of Curricular Approach this last year. So it was a virtual platform. So I was able to share kind of my initial findings, which was a really cool platform to share. It was for the returning track. So people who had gone to the Institute before, um, it was a session around learning organizations. So we were able to kind of share some some of what the research had shared. So I had a little bit of time to share the model in general. And from that time, there was someone who reached out to me, Danielle Barefoot from the University of Iowa, who said, I'm really intrigued. Can we meet? Um, I'd like to think about creating kind of like a rubric for my department. And I said, hold up, let's work together and let's create like a rubric for anyone to use. And so we've actually been working on a rubric based on the model, which is a pretty palatable way to understand, you know, how is your organization, where are the strengths, where are the opportunities within your organization based on the model, based on the research, based on the findings, you know, which really is around what participants had shared in the research, as well as, you know, other findings um, and research from people who have done work within the curricular approach. And so we're hoping to get that out here sooner than later. Um, and I am about 20 pages into an article that I need to finish that has been kind of on a... <laughs> in the back burner since I had my little one, but I have about nine more pages that I need to write that's mentally in my head, but not on paper yet. And so need to figure that out and figure out the best platform to submit that. I have a few that I have in mind, but I recognize that, you know, I don't know who's going to read a 200 page dissertation, but someone might read a 30 page article. So I, I think that those are some of the ways that I want to share what I found because I found it to be helpful for my own practice and hope that others can as well. Wonderful. We're glad to hear that you're looking to publish because it, it really was really valuable. Um, and hopefully people will listen to a podcast about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, shameless plug. Um, I know I would. I, know I, would. <laughs> I, I plug the podcast on the podcast <laughs> to really increase our listener number. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, you know, you talked about publishing an article based off your dissertation research. Any thoughts about, you know, taking this framework, creating really, you create your own framework, taking this model and doing further studies with it, whether that's case studies, whether that's trying to branch off and maybe apply that to the division model, not just residence life. Yeah, I mean, I've thought about the possibilities of, you know, replicating some of the research at different in, different types of institutions, whether that's at like a small private liberal arts institution or, you know, at a divisional level. I think there's a lot of similarities. What I do believe is the model encompasses so many similarities that any institution could look at it and say, this is how we can structure this within our division to be able to do this. It's it's very transferable. And so I have thought about the ability to, you know, once the rubric's out there, Danielle and I have talked about, you know, what are the next steps or what could happen? And I do think that it would be interesting you know, once we get some feedback from colleagues, we're going to get some feedback before we kind of um, put it to print just to make sure that it seems like a user-friendly guide um, outside of just our brains together. But I do think there's a lot of opportunity to think about how are people utilizing at least that rubric, that framework, to be able to highlight possible ways that departments have shifted their their organization, their culture, their structure. Um, so I've, I've thought about different ways to do it, but I'm open to new suggestions if people have thoughts after they listen to this. <laughs> Uh, the good thing is you'll have a section of the website where people can go and get your contact information so they can contact you for more information. We'll also have a visual representation of the model and if the rubric, which we can put up there so people can use it and access it and help build a strong residential curriculum for their institution. So the, thing, the one thing with Residence Life is it is one of the programs or offices within student affairs that becomes very much, not a catch-all, that's not the right term, but there's a lot of competing priorities within that department. You yourself said it in your dissertation, the nature of Residence Life is addressing student needs and it's these are professionals that are often in crisis mode for a good amount of the year. Now we're adding a curricular requirement, taking on the role of educators. We've seen residence life change so much over the past, I want to say 20, encompassing the 90s, but I know that that's not right. And I'm old, so let's say 30 or 40 years um, as we move beyond dorms into residence halls. Now we're taking curriculum approaches. I remember when I was an RA, it was the wellness wheel. In your opinion, after do doing this research, working in residence life, what do you think the Residence Life Department of the Future looks like? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think to as I think back to what I know and what research has said, I think back to when I've been an attendee at the Institute on Curricular Approach, what Keith Edwards and what Kathleen Gardner talk about is this essentialism piece of like, what is essential? What do we want students to learn? I think about what you know, Paul Brown talks about, about, you know, it taking multiple years to create the curricular approach. And I think about Kathleen Kerr and Jim Tweedy at the University of Delaware, how they really created this curricular model that has been replicated in a lot of ways at institutions and now at division, divisional units. And I think about all the research that has been done. And as I think towards the future, I just want to make sure that I'm sharing the good work that's happened. And I I think it does come down to what essentially do residence life programs want students to learn and how are they scaffolding learning around the core learning goals that they have and everything else, it matters, yes, but it's most important to think about the goal and the vision of the department that they have and how, as Keith will talk about often about the essential pieces of 
really honing in on what the department needs to do because there are departments on campuses that do a lot of the other work that I think some people might feel is residence life work. And so there's only so many things that residence life can do, but being able to scaffold that is going to be the most important thing. And so I, you know, a lot of the work that the University of Oregon is doing right now is in partnership with academic programs. And so really thinking about that out of class learning students, as we know, are spending 80% of their time outside of the classroom. And so how are we bridging that gap in a lot of ways to connect with academic partners and faculty partners to bring them to the residence halls? How do we create those opportunities to enhance student learning when, you know, at the U of O, we have students live with us for pretty much a year and then they move off campus. We would like that to be different. Um, and so thinking about different ways, but I, I do think it's it's partnering with faculty more. It's bridging that out of class experience in a lot of ways to the co-curricular learning um, with academic partners. And so that's where, that's where a lot of the efforts that we're moving towards at the University of Oregon. And I do think that there's been a cultural shift to continue that work. We have, whether that's like faculty that live in the residence halls or, you know, connection with faculty. I think that's really important where, where a lot of residence life programs seem to be shifting their, their initiatives and efforts. You kind of referenced the different partnerships that you need on campus to make sure that this curriculums are successful. What would you say to a faculty member who looks at this and says, curriculum is the faculty's responsibility, you are staff, and stay in your lane? So we actually at the University of Oregon, we hosted Keith Edwards and Kathleen Gardner to do kind of a mini institute on curricular approach a few years ago. And something that I've heard Keith say time and time again is that it's about using the language that works best for your institution. So if curriculum isn't a word that would work well with faculty, what is it that that would work well? And so whether that's a learning model or whether it's, you know, some people do use the curriculum. Some people call it a residential learning model. Some people have a very catchy name that um, they utilize within their department, but it really is understanding the context of the institution that you're at. And if faculty would give that pushback, I think what Keith would say and what I've heard him say is it's about naming it in a way that faculty would be bought into it. Something else that's interesting that one of the participants did or was planning to do, actually one of them, one of the schools does this, is they map everything to their general education requirements. And so it's a way that they've connected with faculty is to say, this is how we're highlighting the gen ed requirements. And they've gotten great feedback from faculty. They've vet their curricular model through the faculty senate. So it is something that, um, the department, it, it is bought into by faculty because they, it is a curriculum at that institution and faculty are very much bought into it because um, it goes through the same rigor that faculty do as well. So I think there's lots of ways that one could integrate it. It's just understanding the context of your institution and able to, um, and able to do it well. That was actually really sort of an insightful summary of, you know, the, the institutional context matters within the framework that you created, any kind of other, you you know, you provided the space for your participants to share recommendations for other institutions. And certainly know your institutional context is an important one of those. Is there another one that stands out to you from your participants to say, you know, if I were to be at a brand new university or a brand new institution, this is a key recommendation that I, that I need to implement to, to make this approach work? 
Yeah. So I asked uh, the participants kind of two overarching questions. One is how, um, uh, what recommendations you have for others about creating a learning organization and secondarily recommendations about sustaining a curricular model. And so it was um, within that, I I pulled in all the themes and, and everything. And a lot of people had shared that um, it's very, um, the, like the main recommendation, one of them was to be focused on learning. And so thinking about how am I, as an educator, as a student affairs educator, how am I actually creating learning? What am I doing in my current role? How am I educating myself to better my practice? How am I educating myself to challenge colleagues to educate themselves as well? How am I creating this moment for for other people to, to really learn in different ways? And then also there was other recommendations around knowing that it takes time. And so this isn't something that's going to take just like, you know, a year to do, like this is going to take two to three years as Paul Brown has talked about. Um, And people had shared that it's so important to understand the capacity of people um, when they're actually integrating the curricular model. So to understand it's going to take time for people to get bought into it. It's going to take time for people to create a curricular model. It's going to take time to change and address culture for for the departments. A lot of participants had shared that when you're creating facilitation guides, it's vital to have multiple opinions. So not necessarily, you know, sitting in, you know, sitting in my office, creating a facilitation guide and putting it to print, but it's going to be really important that that is informed by research, best practice, um, understanding my institutional context, and that I have multiple eyes on that and multiple people that are editing it to create ideally a better guide to be facilitated as well as um, that creates buy-in as well. When people have the opportunity to contribute to something, they're going to be more bought into it in the end result. And then lastly, uh, people had shared about being open to being challenged, open to learning, open to wanting to grow and develop from other people. And so wanting to, to do that was another salient theme as well. Wonderful. So the last question I like to kind of end this podcast with is what are any pieces of advice that you have for individuals currently on their doctoral journey? And that could mean coursework, that could mean dissertation, that could mean preparing for defense, however you want to interpret that. That is a great question. I, about a year, so it took me three years for coursework and uh, graduation. So to start to finish, I started in 2017 and finished in 2020. And probably a year and a half in, I finally found my groove. And that is what I will tell everyone is find a groove that works for you. I realized that doing things at night was not working for my brain. I love to cook. It's a form of self-care. And so I I would start going to bed at eight o'clock and I would get up at around four o'clock in the morning and I would either go and work out in the morning or I would sit on my kitchen counter and do doctoral work for two hours. And so I would get a chunk of that done. I I had to have a chunk of it. I I couldn't do something like, oh, on a half hour, my lunch break, I'm going to work on it. I I couldn't do that. I had to have like two or two and a half hours to do something. And so I would do that probably two to three mornings a week. Um, And on the off times, I would go work out in the morning. And then on the weekends, I found um, 
to go to a coffee shop with a, one of my cohort mates. And um, we would sit in that coffee shop for, I don't even know how many hours and just being able to do work with someone that was doing something else. Even we might not be talking, we were both doing doctoral work, which was great. Um, and we spent most of the Saturdays together, which was awesome. And I would wake up early on Sunday and usually do the same thing, but Sunday afternoons were my time to just not have to do any, any, any work at all. And I found that groove and that is the groove that worked for me. I was, and that was after I was kind of done with some of my core classwork, which was mostly on like Friday nights and Saturdays. So I just kind of spilled in my Saturdays with, you know, coffee shop writing time. Um, and that was, that was very helpful. That helped me push through that helped me graduate in three years. My faculty advisor said the only reason why people don't finish on a timely manner is because they stop writing. And mm. it's not because they change topics. I was worried that I wouldn't finish in three years because I changed topics. She said, it's just because they stop writing. So as long as you consistently write and give me edits, you're going to finish in, a, in the time that you want to you want to finish. We also had like beach retreat weekends where we went to the beach, um, as cohort mates and sat around on Friday, Saturday, all day, Sunday, and just, we just wrote. And so I would take some, sometimes Fridays off from work and take a vacation day and, and write. I, it was enough for me to invest the time and energy that I was still getting my core job done. Um, and my boss was great about giving me time to be able to, you know, take vacation time to be able to finish this, which I'm grateful for because a dissertation isn't perfect. It's, it's good that it's done. So it's, and that's, and it's done. And I'm so grateful for the journey that I've had, that, that I've had. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule, even have considering you have a newborn, well, a, a baby, a very fresh baby, fresh baby. That's gross. Um, <laughs> considering you have a baby um, to take time in your schedule, we understand that your time is very valuable. Um, so thank you so much for sharing your research with us and your insight into that process and residence life, as well as the doctoral process. Um, any last thoughts you have? I, I think it's, you know, just important to think about the roles that we have in student affairs, that we are educators and thinking about how we're creating those moments for students and staff that we work with. And so the so one thing I would encourage people to do is continue to challenge yourself to improve your, your practice, continue to make well-informed, you know, data-driven assessment, driven, um, informed research, which was something that I learned a lot through my doctoral program is the there's so much out there that we don't know about that we just have to do a little bit of research ourselves to better inform what we do on a day-to-day basis. So true. Excellent. Thank you again to our listeners. Please remember to subscribe to hear all future episodes of the Beyond the Defense podcast. New episodes are released Fridays at 5 p.m., so make sure to mark that in your calendar. Please sure to follow the Beyond the Defense podcast on Facebook and Twitter to receive updates on upcoming episodes. And if you're interested in sharing your research, more information can be found there as well.